week for a game. We'll have volleyball, and in fact, I think they're playing Purdue. But um, listen to DSRs during the week, and good night and go blue. Navarre gives to Perry. Perry through the middle. Touchdown, Michigan! And the Wolverines have won it in overtime. Michigan wins by a score of 27 to 24, and the team storms the field to mob Chris Perry. WCBN Sports, 88.3 FM, Ann Arbor. WCBN.org. Grabs on to attempt it for the Wolverines. Holds her breath Ann Arbor as Navarre gets set. Places down, kick is up. It's long enough. It's good! It's good! Michigan wins the game! Michigan shocks Washington, and the Wolverines are victorious! Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And wow, interesting stuff today. Uh, Turkish troops are on the move, <laughs> apparently uh, moving to the border of Iraq. All sorts of problems uh, with that. There was this uh, sort of strange vote in Congress last week about genocide out of the foreign Relations Committee in the House that uh, could have been a contributing factor, although I doubt oh, I, it. Well, I don't know. I think there's <laughs> something to be made of that. Yeah. Then we have the completely uneventful and incoherent GOP debate in Dearborn last week that I'll comment on briefly. But, yeah, record oil prices today. Uh, oil went over $86 a barrel uh, in response to the uh, Turkish troop movement, and all sorts of other strange things going on. For instance, I'll just start off with this. Uh, an amazing story um, by Scott Shane in yesterday's New York Times about Joseph Nassio, uh, the former chief executive of Quest. Scott Shane writes, the phone company Quest Communications refused a proposal from the NSA that the company lawyers considered illegal in February of 2001, nearly seven months before the 9-11 attack, the former head of the company contends in newly unsealed court filings. The executive, Joseph Nasio, also asserts in filings that the agency, that's the NSA, uh, the no such agency, yeah. uh, retaliated by um, depriving Quest of lucrative outsourcing contracts. The filings were made as Mr. Nasio, and this is important, fought charges of insider trading. He was convicted in April of 19 counts of insider training, uh, trading and has been sentenced to six years in prison. He remains free while appealing the conviction. Well, what's interesting about this, of course, and there's all sorts of denials, um, and we'll get into the substance of it, as part of his defense, uh, Scott Shane writes, Mr. Nasio claimed 
that he had knowledge of top-secret contracts with the NSA and other government agencies that made the company's financial prospects brighter than was publicly known. Prosecutors denied the claims. At the time of the claimed meeting at NSA's Fort Meade, Maryland headquarters in uh, February on February 27th of 2001, Mr. Nasio was chairman of the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee, whose members included top executives of major communications uh, companies. And like nearly every other chief in the industry, he had uh, been granted a security clearance to work with government on, quote, secret projects. Well, this raises all kinds of questions. I think there needs to be a congressional investigation into this to find out the validity of the truth. First of all, why would the Bush administration be seeking um, NSA telephone surveillance of customer records, these are presumably Americans, uh, seven months before 9-11? Why was Dick Cheney at the time, um, supposedly, according to Paul O'Neill's book, dividing Iraq up? into sectors for the oil industry. Uh, Why uh, was the Bush administration actually ignoring um, the, uh, shall we say, uh, um, details of of al-Qaeda's interest in uh, attacking America? And this according to uh, Richard Clark, for instance, the uh, al-Qaeda man in charge, uh, both during the Clinton and Bush administrations. And, of course, this also raises implications for the uh, pending FISA bill right now mm-hmm. uh, about this uh, sort of surveillance. So I think we need uh, answers to these questions. I think people need to be put under oath. I don't think this is stuff that uh, uh, national security requires this to be held in closed session. I think the American people need to know what the heck's going on. Well, indeed, we've certainly been paying an awful lot for it. Uh, the likelihood that we will, in fact, ever see this come to an investigation um public or otherwise probably remains slim sadly indeed but obviously uh there were a number of indicators that emerged uh, post 9-11 that suggested hey wait a minute looks like there was already a plan in place uh just waiting for a sort of a go-ahead moment or as one document damningly portended a new pearl harbor something to rally and motivate the American people to submit to fear. Uh. And by the way, this uh, story, uh, which did appear in the back pages of the New York Times, uh, featured a front page story uh, that was very interesting. Uh, More details, quote-unquote, about the Israeli airstrike uh, on Syria. Uh Uh, and this, of course, is uh, let's let's take this story with a grain of salt. This is uh, these are quote many senior Israeli officials that are giving their account to uh, David Sanger and Mark Mazzetti. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, I heard Assad, by the way, on an interview a couple weeks ago on BBC, in which he uh, definitely was circumspect about what was hit. He claimed it was an unused military facility. Uh, Israeli officials are basically saying that this was the beginnings of a nuclear reactor. Uh, Who knows? But uh, 
it's interesting that, of course, other countries in the region have not commented about this. But in the BBC interview, uh, to Assad's credit, he talked a little bit about the uh, problems uh, that Syria is having as a result of the Iraq war with all the refugees mm -hmm. uh, that have been created uh, by the continued occupation of Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, the dismembering of Iraq. And uh, as we've seen with this uh, movement of Turkish troops, this uh, is uh, probably going to get worse before it gets better. Well, especially uh, given what happened in the summer of 2006 with uh, Israel's fairly wanton uh, attack on the civilian infrastructure of Lebanon, I suppose Syria should consider itself to have gotten off easy here. But I think clearly the implications are, you know, pretty, pretty obvious that uh, Israel will have carte blanche from the United States to do what it will in the region, uh, whether intelligence is going to be shared or revealed uh, to sustain such uh, claims or attacks uh, is beside the point. They won't need to. And the other thing that I find odd about this story is the the uh, sort of association that's being made with North Korea. I mean, it's it's there's something kind of incoherent about this. Well, it seems so artificial and, you know, almost tailor-made to fit into place to the, the good old axis of evil. Mm-hmm. And, of course, <clears throat> it's a nice way to uh, send a message to Iran, too, which uh, Israel, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, if you follow the Israeli media, it's pretty openly discussed and has been for a number of years. Should Israel make a first nuclear strike against Iran? It's been a matter of public discourse there for years. And what's strange, of course, is, for instance, uh, Ehud Olmert, uh, prime minister of Israel, said this. He said, quote, there wasn't a lot of debate about the evidence, but there was a lot of debate about how to respond to it. Now, the senior Israeli official, quote, while, and I'm quoting here from uh, David uh, Sanger and Mark Mazzetti, while declining to speak about the specific nature of the target, said that the strike was intended to, quote, reestablish the credibility of our deterrent power. <laughs> signaling that Israel meant to send a message to Syria that even the potential for uh, a nuclear weapons program would not be permitted. Several American officials said the strike may have been intended by Israel as a signal to Iran and its nuclear ambitions. And the article goes on to continue to claim, quote, Syria is known to have one nuclear reactor, a small one built for research purposes, but in the past decade, Syria has several times sought unsuccessfully to buy one, first from Argentina, then from Russia. Uh, and on those occasions, Israel reacted strongly but did not threaten military action. Earlier this year, Mr. Assad spoke publicly in general terms about Syria's desire to develop nuclear power, but his government did not announce a plan to build a nuclear reactor. Uh, so this, of course, uh, raises all sorts of uh, unknown uh, questions that haven't been answered. And needless to say, the rumor, of course, is that Dick Cheney and other, quote, administration hawks, quoting from the article again, have made the case that the same intelligence that prompted Israel to attack should lead the United States to reconsider delicate negotiations with North Korea. Boy, this does seem tailor-made for the Hawks case right. of 
saber rattling, uh, breaking off negotiations with North Korea, which ha- have actually progressed, I think, uh, to some extent with the assistance of Russia. Then there's this bizarre, um, quote, threat on Putin as he's in, uh, about to uh, go to Iran uh, to discuss all sorts of issues. Uh, I'm sure that primarily there are discussions about uh, the energy issues in the Caspian Sea. This is the first no Russian doubt. leader to visit Iran since the Second World War when Stalin met uh, FDR and Churchill That's in true. Tehran in 1943. So uh, w- why would Iran threaten Putin, or why would there be a plot in Iran against Putin? That sounds once again like a mysterious CIA-concocted fictional story. A convenient fiction. To create, I don't know what, doubt. Uh, Putin, of course, ignored the, quote, threat. But what kind of threat was it, and why would there be such a threat? What animus does any organization in Iran have with Putin? Um, Their policies, Iran and Russia, incidentally, and, of course, Iran is also... uh, had to deal with some refugees, but not as much as uh, Syria and Jordan as a result of the Iraq war. But they have benefited from the Iraq war's rapid increase in oil prices. This is one of the reason uh, reasons Russia's getting significantly wealthier. Mm-hmm. It's amazing stuff, but uh, def- definitely once again shows uh, some kind of discombobulation in American foreign policy at the moment. Uh, Condoleezza Rice, you know, on her knees shouting about a peace process, a conference that's going to be held in November. What, six years into, almost seven years into the Bush presidency? It's a little late, and we'll see what comes of it. I guess apparently there's been some talk uh, from Olmert about uh, actually conceding the issue of dividing Jerusalem. That'll be a hard sell to uh, the extreme right-wingers in Israel, of course. And it might be too little too late for uh, practical matters uh, as far as the development or establishment of an independent uh, Palestinian state. I think most uh, experts, um, that is, you know, objective experts, insofar as such a thing is possible with regards to the Israel-Palestine conflict, pretty much have argued consistently for a binational secular state that a independent Palestinian runt state would really uh, continue to be nothing other than an economic dependency upon Israel. Um, Gaza's the world's largest ghetto, essentially, and the West Bank would be uh, entirely landlocked, uh, aquifers uh, pretty much entirely controlled by Israel. So the true uh, sovereign nature of a Palestinian state as constituted between Gaza and the West Bank would be very much a runt state, a sort of a, you know, an official Bantustan rather than the unofficial cluster of Bantustans that it is uh, today. Al Gore, of course, won, uh, was a co-winner of the Nobel Peace Prize for his uh, involvement with global warming. We can talk about that, I think, somewhere down the road. But an interesting uh, study uh, was released last week by the National Academy of Sciences uh, regarding the ethanol production uh, Mm -hmm. mania that's going on in America today. Uh, According to the National 
Academy of Sciences and in conjunction with the uh, EPA and other, quote, government agencies, they've issued a report about the problems with uh, ethanol. And basically the conclusion is uh, corn, the most widely grown fuel crop in the United States, might cause more damage per unit of energy than other plants. Boy, that's news. Uh, especially switchgrass and native grasses, the panel said. Production of ethanol from corn kernels is on the rise, the panel said, adding that President Bush has called for the annual production of 35 billion gallons of ethanol by 2017, an amount that would account uh, for 15% of liquid transportation fuels in the United States. But increased production could greatly increase pressure on water supplies for drinking, industry, hydropower, fish habitat, and recreation, and facilities that turn plants into corn, uh, turn uh, corn into liquid fuel, would add to the pressure on water supplies, though these biorefineries are relatively modest water consumers compared with agriculture, the panel said. The ethanol debate needs some serious reconsideration. Um, we've talked, I think, in the past about the efficiency issue with ethanol, and it's something like a 19 to 17 ratio. It just doesn't create that much energy independence. And needless to say, we saw in this GOP uh, Dearborn debate that was supposed to focus on economic issues, real mamby-pamby stuff from all the uh, leading Republicans on Energy issues, you know, yeah. they just talk generally about, oh, we need to do solar, wind, you know, it's all very vague. There were no real commitments anywhere. And of course, I want to give a brain damage award out to the um, sort of NBC panel that was doing the questioning. Not one question to any of the candidates. And of course, Ron Paul mentioned it in his one of his spiels, but the cost of the Iraq war. The Republicans were allowed to just fall back on these meaningless comments about tax cuts, and they got into their little jujitsu matches on who cut taxes the most and who raised taxes and all that garbage. And, of course, uh, Fred Thompson made his appearance. Uh, he's been called a Appalachian catfish wrestler by a comedian, <laughs> and I think that's <laughs> that's a fine uh, epithet. A perfect description of the guy. Um, but I want to give a brain damage award out to the NBC panel because it strikes me that the main economic issue that the Republican Party should be answering is where does the $600 billion come from to pay for the Iraq war, you know, up to this point with no end in sight. Right, not even talking about the foreseeable or unforeseeable future, just to this point. And of course, you know, the adventure... As uh, <laughs> former uh, Prime Minister of Germany Schroeder called the Iraq War, <laughs> Mr. Toad's wild ride, the adventure uh, could get very adventurous uh, now that Turkish troops are on the move um, and British troops are on the move out. out. <laughs> That's interesting uh, problems. And of course, this was yet another warning uh, delivered. Remember, Turkey did not allow the United States to invade Iraq from their border because they saw the uh, potential problems uh, in dismembering Iraq and creating this regional instability that we've now seen. 
Yeah, since we've come around back to Turkey, I want to say a few things about this resolution because there's a number of problems with it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, of course, the resolution is to, uh, I suppose, condemn Turkey and to officially uh, denounce the mass slaughter of Armenians, uh, 1.5 million are the number that generally bandied about, um, in the early part of the 20th century. And of course, this is no secret. It's right. been widely known for years. Uh, some have called it genocide. Others choose not to use that term, but it's it's no secret. It's It's widely known. So it raises the question about who is this recent resolution meant to benefit or to placate? Mm-hmm. Now, Armenian Americans and you know, I know people who are very passionate about this issue, of course, demand some sort of justice. Uh, and, you know, rightfully so, there needs to be a uh, sort of a calling to the task there, a calling to the mat. But it seems to be a little short-sighted to kind of needlessly piss off a regional ally. But by declaring what everybody already knew, um, Nancy Pelosi says, of course, that the U.S.-Turkish relationship will remain strong despite this uh, condemnation, which is strange in itself. It, it suggests that we're okay being partners with a country that's committed an act of genocide, and they're okay if we call it that. Um, we just want to call a spade a spade. But then you have to look at that from the other side of the coin, if that's the case. When will we acknowledge the American genocide sure. of the Native Americans or of Filipinos and uh, a number of other possible cases. Anytime reparations for slavery has come up as a subject of political discourse in this country, it's routinely mooted, laughed off. Oh, no, that's too, we can't do anything about that. Uh, that's what affirmative action was supposed to do. But uh, in a very serious way, this too is a form of genocide, um, as practiced uh, by businessmen looking for free labor back in the uh, early days of our country as country was essentially founded on genocide sure so uh so why doesn't turkey just pass a resolution exactly condemning america for quote genocide i think the problem is actually with the term genocide because i think genocide is one of those words that's unfortunately bandied about uh, for political purposes, overused by, by uh, you know someone once said that history is written by the winners. Right. Uh, well, that's true because the winners don't want to look at their skeletons in the closet. Uh, only the Grateful Dead does. <laughs> um, so yeah, there are all kinds of problems with it. Yes, this happened a hundred years ago. That's um, nearly a hundred years ago. It was part of World War One. Uh, mass killings, of course, occurred. But I don't think that it was the, quote, genocide the way we think of the Holocaust and Hitler's mania. Um, You know, his anti-Semitism turned into just diabolical uh, mass murder. Um, This was part of World War I. There clearly were million, well, you know, I think the one and a half million is an accurate number. And certainly um, there, there are some issues with Turkey's, unwillingness to acknowledge this that are right. strange in and of itself. But I find it very peculiar that this issue is being brought up now. Yeah, the timing is bizarre. And, of course, the ex- the uh, proponents of this have said, well, we've we've been putting this off for 40 years. We've, we've always come up with excuses for why we can't bring this up now. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, a symbolic 
and it it, it it has yet to go to the House floor. By the way, this was right. a this is co- just a committee committee. Um, Tom Lantos is the guy involved with this, and he's that sort of semi obnoxious Democrat from the Bay Area. Uh, he is a Holocaust survivor, so he's got his axes to grind, shall we say. That's what this is about. He's placating somebody in some constituency somewhere for some reason. But um, why Congress is voting on these kinds of things is kind of strange. Well, and if you wanted to put pressure on Turkey for anything, you know, the victims of this genocide, they won't benefit from this denunciation. Armenian Americans don't really benefit from it either. You might want to talk about the situation and the legal status of Kurds within Turkey. That might be something you could uh, condemn Turkey for or any other uh, sort of systematic elimination type situations going on in the rest of the world today, Um, say in Gaza or in Darfur. You know, those might be worthy of official denunciations. In other words, if Turkey um, passed a resolution condemning the Catholic Church for the Spanish Inquisition... (laughs) You know, what would that mean? I mean, right. you can have debates about the past, but it just strikes me as sort of bizarre because nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, Christians have done all sorts of heinous things, sure. too. Um, so what is this really about? I don't know. Ultimately, it strikes me that it's factually correct, but it's strategically blunderous. Yeah. And it just seems... Like, of course, you can make the argument there is no convenient timing, but why doesn't Congress just pass a resolution condemning the Spanish Inquisition, (laughs) you know? Or or why not go into the Romans, you know? And the right. Throwing- well, you know, if it weren't for the Spanish Inquisition, <laughs> Columbus would never have gotten his funding. Yeah. So we can't condemn the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> and speaking of... Heresy, mate. There are one, three, five. Get out the comfort shop. Here's another bizarre (laughs) item that really, I mean, this makes even less sense than the whole Turkish thing, and this is just a brain damage award on a cultural matter here. But there is a right-wing paranoid fantasy here that the Google corporate logos are anti-American. Uh-oh, is this a Procter & Gamble thing? You know, uh, the devil is in the oh, right. <laughs> logo. Could be, but uh, <clears throat> let's see. Of course, anybody who's familiar with uh, doing a Google search, and that's most Americans these days, uh, knows that uh, the Google logo sometimes takes on a festive holiday arrangement for St. Patrick's Day or whatever. Well, apparently, uh, the company uh, recently decided to honor the 50th anniversary of the Sputnik launch <clears throat> and in this um, little day's display, the second G in Google was replaced with the drawing of the Soviet satellite. And uh, this is being blasted by conservatives, <laughs> one of whom wrote, Not only did Google honor an achievement by a totalitarian regime that was our Cold War enemy, but it did so without ever having altered its logo to commemorate U.S. soldiers on Memorial Day or Veterans Day. It's like a kick to the belly. Um 
Well, gee, I don't know. The Cold War's over. The Soviet Union is no more. Like it or not, Sputnik was a human achievement. Sure. Um, it was the, the first of its kind. It certainly triggered the space race uh, and all the inherent paranoia that joyfully came with that. But uh, they do a lot of these recognition of scientific achievements. And, uh, you know, it's a human thing rather than a nation versus nation thing. Google uh, spokespeople have said, well, we do scientific things and lighthearted holidays. Uh, Memorial Day and Veterans Day are, you know, fairly somber affairs and deserve to be uh, treated as such. Uh, this is just kind of pointless and bizarre to be obsessed with. I mean, still fighting a fantasy version of the Cold War. Uh, Google is one of the few things actually active and happening in our economy these days. Mm -hmm. uh, how can you attack their patriotism? Uh, they're employing American citizens. Well, they are, and the thing, too, is that the Sputnik launch uh, was beneficial to the United States, ultimately, in many ways. It did uh, motivate uh, a generation of science and technology that, unfortunately, this country has sort of, I think, you know, let that sort of movement that was uh, promoted by Eisenhower and, and uh, Kennedy, uh, very beneficial things resulted from the space race. Of course, there were bad things, too. Um, I think Star Wars has been just a, the biggest waste of money uh, in, in American history. About $100 billion has been wasted on that. And this is the United States trying to weaponize space against right. mythical attacks that, you know, people don't even have these missiles to worry about. And, of course, they cook their own tests in the Pacific recently. There was another one of these tests right. um, regarding the space shield uh, missile defense system that's a big boondoggle of finance. But the science is was beneficial to the United States, uh, the, the rivalry there to motivate uh, sp space exploration, compute that it developed computers. Right. There are all sorts of um, spinoffs from the space race that were beneficial to the United States. And the facts are the Soviet Union uh, has had great science in the 20th century. They were instrumental in the development of many uh, technical areas of physics, for instance, mm -hmm. that... You can't just say this didn't happen. It's whitewashing history to satisfy some ridiculous uh, Cold War paranoia that borders on the insane. I mean, the, in the, this day and age, the facts are the American and Soviet Union lost about zero troops in the quote Cold War. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, the death and destruction that occurred in third world countries, proxy wars, the proxy wars that were supported. Uh, surreptitiously by both governments, and in many cases illegal wars, are, are the real tragedy of the Cold War. We didn't win the Cold War. We lost billions, trillions of dollars, and millions of people died as a result of our misguided anti-communist obsessions with uh, various parts of the world that were deemed to be in our strategic sphere of influence. Um, but the Cold War has always, in my opinion, been a exaggerated concept. Uh, certainly, uh, the Soviets' crackdown in Hungary in '56 uh, was, you know, thousands of people died. But it was only 2,000. It wasn't three million, such as Indochina, uh, w which America has. You know, stains on its uh, reputation as a result of, and that's just one area of the world that we. Uh, 
fooled around in as a result of the Cold War. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's a classic conservative uh, hysteria. Hysteria indeed. Looks like we got about a minute left. A quick brain damage award to the headline writer of this article. The recent uh, yet another school shooting, this time in Cleveland. Headline, school shooter had mental problems. Uh, yeah. And the and access to guns. The schools, uh, I'll just give a brain damage award on that one to the mother. Uh, she supposedly bought him an assault right. rifle. 